0: Off the bat, uh, here in your playing, uh, so much of the textures and the sounds that you work with are a pretty radical abstraction of the trumpet. Um, and yet what's fascinating to me is that so much of it is so unique to the trumpet in terms of the way that the instrument physically operates. Uh, and I was just wanted to ask you how you discovered a lot of those techniques, and how you came to uh, playing the trumpet the way that you do in a, you know, Sure. It's a big question. but Yeah.
1: Well, I'll, I'll, I'll try. Yeah. Well, first off, I didn't choose the trumpet as my instrument. I wanted to play the drums. So um, there was some debate about what I'd play. Somehow ended up on the trumpet, didn't know anything about trumpet music, you know. I was listening to whatever was on the radio in the early 80s and uh, wasn't really familiar with the instrument so I tried to find music made by the trumpet and what I gravitated towards was baroque music so uh, baroque music classical music but then the other side of my listening outside of the trumpet I was really into sonic youth and the bubble surfers and mm-hmm. alternative rock kind of stuff and those two worlds were always very separate And then as I started hearing more and more uh, in-between-the-cracks kind of music and music that didn't fit into any kind of specific genre, I started hearing sounds that I was really interested in, but I couldn't really figure out how to make them on on the trumpet. So a lot of it is just, you hear something that you think is interesting and say, okay, how do I apply that to the trumpet? And you kind of mess around until some of these sounds come out of it. And um, I think some of them are semi-intuitive in that, you know, if you do the depress the vowels way, you get these smears and in-between mm-hmm. notes. And so I think a lot of it started with that. And then with listening, just listening to more and more musicians and finding different kinds of music, you hear people and you say, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to try and apply that to the trumpet. So I started hearing evan parker and a lot of the european free improvisers and then uh a lot of experimental music with bowed cymbals and things like that and mm-hmm. different overtones they would try and get but I, I didn't hear a lot of trumpet players doing it and then the funny thing is the first time i heard toshinori kondo i was really upset because i re- I, I thought i'd Invented all this stuff. I was like, yeah, yeah, these crazy sounds. And I heard him, he's doing all, all of them. So I think certain of those kind of sounds are specific to the instrument in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're limited in certain ways. So you can push against that as much as you want. And you'll find other people pushing against it in similar ways sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were discussing in the control
0: room for a moment how a lot of the, the stuff that you do sounds maybe electronic even and sort of approaches the sound of like a synthesizer or or, you know some computer music and how it at the same time is so extremely acoustic in um, how those sounds are conjured so I thought that was really fascinating.
1: Yeah there was a period of time to try and remove the trumpet as much as possible Mm -hmm. and uh, as you well for me at least as you approach a goal you become less interested in the goal itself and realizing, okay, well, this is, I mean, this is a nice experiment, but I'm not getting a lot out of it.
0: Another uh, thing that sort of occurred to me a little bit was that so many of the textures and sounds uh, sort of by necessity are at a really low volume and I wanted to know how that sort of informs the compositional process for you or how that constraint uh, of needing to make a sound happen at a certain volume for it to happen at all, how that kind of instructs your, your creative instincts as an improviser.
1: Right. It took a while to to figure a lot of that stuff out. So first I was trying to find sounds that were more audible. And then um, after a while I started hearing a lot of music that was comfortable in the lower volume area from uh, some of Morton Feldman's stuff. But particularly for me, uh, Bernard Gunther, the German musician who was doing really uh, low-volume electroacoustic music with a lot of space and a lot of silence Mm -hmm. and hearing that and already having sort of chanced upon certain sounds that i thought were interesting but we just couldn't get to to speak um that music kind of opened up a door for me to well i guess i i can do something at this incredibly low volume and those sounds for a long time were a lot more appealing to me than the other ones because the louder you get, the, for me, the more it sounds like a trumpet, which I wasn't mm-hmm. interested in for a long right. time. It's been the love-hate love, love hate sort of
0: sure. <laughs> situation. And it seems that also, you know, once you've sort of developed a lot of the things that you've developed on the instrument, playing with other people probably is another thing that sort of sure. is affected by that Absolutely, uh, volume yeah. constraint. Uh, I know you've also done a lot of work with amplified trumpet and even feedback trumpet and pretty high volume work, um, but sort of seemingly working from the same yeah, it's the same starting point.
1: Yeah, for for a while I was playing high volume music but using a different vocabulary mm-hmm. because the low uh, some of those sounds just don't sound or they're inaudible without some kind of amplification. So. Mm-hmm. Um, was that something that came
0: purely out of the necessity of needing to make some of those things happen with other people who can only yeah well, yeah kind play of because
1: volume? yeah for a while um I was playing with a, a certain group of people who I could play in that way, but then I started uh just the more I played the more i you plan a show with somebody you meet other people and start playing with them, and uh You have to come up with a different approach and two really good friends of mine who were electric guitar players who ran a record store in boston that was really pivotal for me called twisted village Uh, they had a gig in philly and it was supposed to be them with a drummer and a bass player the drummer couldn't do it then the bass player couldn't do it so then they said well do you want to do you want to do it and i was like what what am i going to do with you guys (laughs) so Um, that was a learning curve but that was the first that became a group called Heath and Shame was the first time that I plugged into an amplifier and used essentially guitar pedals
2: Mm -hmm.
1: but yeah a lot of that I was saying before that uh, playing with Paul Flaherty was something he, he kept asking me to play and I didn't know how I would be able to play with him so I had to kind of figure out what I could do that would fit with what someone like him was doing, and that kind of led me to a whole different area. Yeah. Uh, A question that I ask a lot of uh, solo performers
0: uh, that I encounter on the series is how they uh, organize time or form when they're playing by themselves, Uh, and I wanted to ask you if you could describe the way that you sort of perceive time or form and how you uh, usually think about the structure of that when you're playing solo.
1: It's Yeah, it's all pretty moment to moment. There have been times where I've decided I'm going to have some grand scheme or grand idea, and it usually falls apart pretty quickly. Um, there have definitely been times where I say, I'm just going to do this sound for the, for the whole thing, and about 30 seconds in, I was like, oh, no, this is horrible, I'm not going to do this. So I'll switch. So a lot of it is while playing one thing, thinking ahead of what's gonna come up, and then as you move through the, the piece, considering what you have done, especially when you start doing something, you're like, oh, I think I just did this, so how do I get out of it? But a lot of it, it's almost like a, you hit the start button and then it's a little bit of anxiety and panic trying to figure out how do I get myself out of this situation? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then on this one, a funny thing that I, had, that I thought was, right when I started, it, I was like, we never talked about how long I'm supposed to play. I have no idea how long I'm supposed to play. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'm the only person, so I, should, I shouldn't play 15 minutes. So that was all going on while I was... <laughs> uh-huh. So I was trying to consciously play at least 35 minutes. I had no idea. It was right there on the down. How long, was it? Yeah. Okay great. Excellent. Yeah. Nailed it. <laughs> and then really at a certain point um, it's how ha- to an end. Mm-hmm. And that can be with other musicians or solo. Yeah, I mean that, that's an important part of it for me because that can really affect the perception of the entire thing. I've seen sets that were pretty probably otherwise lackluster but someone ended it really well and mm-hmm. it can change the whole the whole Absolutely. meaning of the piece, and the, this is a bit of a tangent, and not to say that this person's performance was lackluster, but I saw uh, this noise performer named Newton, I think he's from Philadelphia, and he was just doing this harsh noise set, but he was uh, dressed up as a, as a bee,
2: mm-hmm.
1: in this bee costume on, and partway through the set, he unzipped the bee costume and took it off, and he had another bee costume on <laughs> under that. <laughs> And I don't remember much of the content of the sound, but I was like, "That was a fantastic performance." And I think about it more than I should, probably. Sounds inspiring. But yeah, there's you can read into it in a lot of ways, and I have been for a decade at least.
3: (laughs) mm <laughs>
0: question related to uh, your solo playing is how much the room has an effect on uh, not just the techniques that you use, but also sort of your overall approach to a set or your your feeling about uh, playing solo in a given scenario.
1: Yeah, well, um, that relates to what you were talking about with the different methodologies of playing purely acoustic or playing amplified. Um, And I almost have a different mindset for purely acoustic versus amplified acoustic, versus amplified with effects, usually Mm -hmm. through an amplifier. Those for me are kind of different mindsets. And sometimes I don't always want to do what's intuitive. So there'll be a situation where, oh, it's going to be a noise show in a dingy basement and no one's going to be listening. And sometimes for those, I'll say that I'm going to play acoustic at this mm-hmm. one with no amplification, just to see how it works. And sometimes in those situations, people actually do come down to your level. One thing with um, the group that I'm in called Nimprine, which is me and a saxophone player, Bahav Rainey, is we did a lot of touring uh, at the beginning of playing together. And we played in a lot of different scenarios and we realized... Sometimes when they drop you in the middle of a bar if you try and play loud and aggressively people just talk louder Yeah, so the if you're trying to combat the Conversation by turning up doesn't always work. It can actually go against you so We realize sometimes you make some loud sounds at the beginning to tell people We're here something's happening and then if you bring it down oftentimes people will sense it they'll be self-conscious enough to say oh this is quiet i better not be talking yeah but in a room like this and we did some testing before with the microphones and everything but there are certain really really tiny sounds that don't always project Mm -hmm. so i played a little bit um before i started today here just to kind of figure out will this work and it would have worked if I could have gotten the sound to come out, but it didn't, so I did something else. Sure. <laughs> uh, you
0: mentioned the group Nimperion. Yes. Uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit how you got involved in the improvised music scene in Boston uh, when you moved back. Like, who maybe was a, a super formative person for you in terms
1: of getting involved in the community there, or how did that sort of come about for you? I was going to school in Baltimore, and after Baltimore I decided I was thinking about moving to Chicago actually or New York and then I grew up in Massachusetts I actually went and looked at apartments in New York and instantly decided I'm not moving to New York Chicago was a little far and I wasn't sure how I would get set up there so going back to Boston I, um, I could have a buffer where I could live at home and find a job find a place to live and there was a magazine actually called Option Magazine. I think it had a different name before it was called Option. But they covered a lot of improvised music, uh, experimental music, progressive rock, and things like that. And there was a label from the Bay Area called Rastascan, which is Gina Robert mm-hmm. ran it. And they put out a CD by a group called Debris. It, there was a Boston group. So I saw, okay, there are people in Boston doing this kind of thing, so that's as good a place to go as any. So I moved back there, and I looked up the members of Debris to see where they were playing, and there was a series at a place called the Bookseller Cafe in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. I think it was, it wasn't even weekly, it was just kind of sporadic, but it, it happened all the time. So I started going to those, all of those shows. And after a while, people would say, who are you and why are you here? Mm-hmm and uh, through that, I befriended some people. Somebody gave me a show at this place called the Zeitgeist Gallery, where I played solo with tapes because I didn't have anybody to play with. (laughs) And through that, I met uh, a handful of musicians that I would end up playing a lot with. But early on, I would say a pivotal person who I haven't talked to in a while, I should probably reach out to and make them know that this was uh, pivotal is a, bass player named John Voigt, who's uh, kind of a post-bop, free jazz, eccentric, uh, brilliant, weird musician, and he saw me play, and he said, oh, you got to meet these people, and he literally took me around, sometimes to people's houses, and just said, oh, you have to meet this bassoon player, and we went and played with this bassoon player went and played with a trombone player and he just ended up introducing me to a lot of musicians and through that there wasn't really at the time in Boston what I saw as a cohesive improvised music scene but started to meet people who were not just interested in free jazz but interested in electronic music and John Cage and Zanakis and things like that mm-hmm. and. uh through that I uh, saw Bahab perform and thought it was interesting. We played with a ended up playing with a percussionist named Masashi Harada, who used to teach at New England Conservatory. Mm-hmm. And it was his gig and he asked both of us to play and then afterwards he just said, You guys should never play it together. You sound terrible together. <laughs> He's like, this was a really bad idea and I'm sorry that I did it. And we were like, oh, I, we, we liked it. So we decided to, to go with it. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the funny, the impetus of it was um, Bahab was on a tour. And he was playing in Washington, D.C. And he had his eyes closed and was playing. And then he heard a voice in his ear. <laughs> it was someone saying, we have to go right now. And he just opened his eyes and looked up and basically the owner of the venue, it was like a cafe in DC, had called up and heard him playing and said, what is going on there? That's not the kind of thing that I want happening in my establishment. Uh, Everybody has to get out. So they ended up playing outside near the venue in a park. The police (laughs) came and said, it seems like you guys are having fun, but not here. So he called the next day and he says, Tour's been really interesting. We should form a group and do a cross country tour. Uh-huh. And that's how it I love started. That.
0: People seem to have kind of radical responses to Nimperine and, and s- some of Sometimes. the music that you've made. Can you describe how that's uh, either affected or not affected you in any way, or how that sort of uh,
1: shaped what you do in any way at all? You no, know, it definitely shaped a, a lot of what I do, but like I said, when I was a, a, a kid, one of the poles of music that I was interested in was more along the kind of punk rock line. So, Mm -hmm. I've always had that kind of uh, mindset with a lot of things. And so, a certain amount of provocation or confrontation was not, uh, was interesting to me, depending on how it's done and not just being a jerk for the sake of being a jerk. Mm -hmm. But playing sets that upset people In certain ways you thought at least there's a reaction because sometimes the worst reaction is just no no reaction at all that people are there they don't care it doesn't make any impression then you wonder why am I doing this it's about essentially some form of communication if you're not communicating in any way at all then like you can do it at home or do it in your basement Um, so yeah early on Uh, Bahab and I would listen to a lot of music and critique it and say what we liked and we would disagree sometimes and agree at other points but um, there was a certain kind of um, especially improvised music that was very kind of physical and uh, almost athletic in a way that at the time we thought wasn't I was like, aren't aren't these essentially the kind of people who tried to beat me up in high school, like people flexing and stuff like that? So that was one thing, but also um, being sort of uh, skeptical a bit about even what music means or playing music means. What's the intent? Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of it being like an emotional display. It's like, you know, you don't need that. That's not something that I felt like I was gonna could Do and not feel bad about it Mm -hmm. so a lot of it was really questioning music and What what is music? How much can you take out of music and have it still be music and? um, There was a book that Roulette in New York, which is a venue and a uh, space similar to this in a way, to, they do mm-hmm. recording and they had a, a book out about how to do independent music, so how to put out a record, how to set up tours and all this and in the back it had a glossary and under music the definition of music was anything you use in the same way that you use music and mm-hmm. I thought, okay, that's... I, I can, <laughs> get, I can I can go with that. So part of it is kind of trying to find your own way. There's so much music out there, everything's yeah. always already been done, no matter yeah. what. So what do you have to add to it? And for, for us, and for me in particular, it was really about um, just trying to kind of flip over what... Music's always been important to me, and I always uh, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> So part of this has been an investigation into what makes it work. I still haven't figured it out, but I think there was a period of time where I was very committed to just following a certain trajectory to the, as far as I could take it. Mm -hmm. And then after doing that for a while, I realized it has, it often doesn't make any difference to listeners. Mm -hmm. I ended up in this recording project that was awful probably the worst music I've done and the same person who reviewed all my other records reviewed this one and said pretty much the same thing about that one I was like hmm okay I guess (laughs) (laughs) I guess the message isn't that clear so maybe I should uh, lighten up a little bit
0: Been in Seattle now for four years. Is that Yeah, correct? four and a half years. Okay, how has has living there changed your approach musically, or just your sort of musical life? Could you describe?
1: Uh, yeah, it's changed. I I don't know if it's changed the approach, but um, a lot of people have moved. But at the time when I left Boston, I left for work mm-hmm. for an insurance company that I worked for because somehow this doesn't pay the bills. I don't know <laughs> No, I don't know why. But, so, uh, but I had a lot of uh, collaborators there mm-hmm. across different kinds of music. I was even playing a little bit in a couple of pop bands, just doing like traditional sort of backing horn stuff. And I ended up doing so much that I got a little bit burned out mm-hmm. because I had a day job. And then there was one week where I had... It's like five gigs and four rehearsals and I was like this is like pretty poor planning if it's a hobby because it's really taking a toll so I had to drop a couple things and then I became a little less engaged so a friend would be coming through town from Chicago let's say and mm-hmm. hey I'm on tour no, like, oh, I, I can't go so when I got to Seattle I didn't know I knew a couple people but not a lot and Uh, it kind of hit a reset a little bit so I just started going out as much as possible and I said anything I'm asked to do I'll do and uh, that lasted longer than I thought it would but Mm -hmm. I think about two years ago I was like okay I don't have to do all these things but through that I did uh, develop a handful of working groups that are all very different from what I was playing with In Boston but um, so it's forced me to to stretch a little bit with what I'm doing Mm -hmm. which has been great I think Um, because even if you try and be open-minded about things you can realize you have have either blinders on or prejudices or um, an attitude or so it's always good for me to kind of break any of those down and sure Get off my high
3: horse. And... <laughs> <laughs> Mama <laughs> <laughs>